Good morning, Altoona Regular Baptist Church. It is Sunday, April 26th, and this is our morning service. If you have your Bible, I invite you to join me in John chapter 2. John 2. If you do not have a Bible, I invite you to get up, grab one, follow along as we look at John 2 this morning. We're going to start by reading the chapter, and then we'll have a word of prayer. John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were there set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have, dr have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. He manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them out. He drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the money changers' money, and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us, since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem, at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, and they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew them all, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. We praise you for all that we have in Christ. We praise you for the opportunity to gather together, even over technology, but to gather together around the Word of God and to read, to learn, to grow. We thank you for the privilege to come before you in Christ alone, for the privilege to, to fellowship 
as a body to approach you even now in prayer. To come boldly before the throne of grace. And our perfect high priest in Christ alone. Even now as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that your spirit would work through your word in each and every one of us. That you would accomplish your purpose. That you would give me boldness and authority as I proclaim your truth this morning. And that you would work for your glory. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever had a moment in your life when you realize that everything has changed? Sometimes those moments come in good times in life. Sometimes they come in bad moments in life. Sometimes it's at the death of a loved one. When the reality hits you that everything has changed. Sometimes it's at a graduation or a wedding when, when, when everything hits you and it comes together and you realize everything has changed. I remember the day I graduated high school as, as our class was gathered and before we, we went out, someone made this comment. They said, you realize that this is the last time that we will all be in the same room together. I remember that, that hit me. And I realized that at that moment, everything was about to change. I remember my wedding day. There's not much I remember about the day. Wedding days tend to be crazy times. But I remember getting to the end of the day and getting in the car and driving off with my new wife, Krista. And I remember as we drove off, the realization that everything has changed. Relationship dynamics have changed. There's moments in life when we realize that everything has changed. As we come to John 2 this morning, it becomes apparent that in Jesus, everything has changed. Jesus changes everything. We'll see that this morning as we work our way through John chapter 2. We'll see the first sign, the problem, the solution, and the result. And then as the scene changes, we'll see the last sign, the problem, the solution, and the result. John chapters 2 to 12 are often called the book of signs. In these chapters, John provides eight signs that testify to Jesus' identity as the Son of God and reveal His glory. In John chapter 2, this morning, we'll see both the first sign and the last sign. First thing we see here is the first sign, verses 1 to 5, the problem. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The third day refers back to John 1, 43-51, where we were last week. Where Jesus is interacting with Philip and Nathaniel. And so, as we open up in John chapter 2, we're opening up three days from then. Actually, what we're doing is we're coming to the end of the first week of Jesus' ministry as recorded in John. If you go back through John 1, you'll notice that the, the progression of days... Each new section begins the next day, the next day. So as we come to John 2, we're coming to the seventh day, the end of this first week of Jesus' ministry. And as John 2 opens, we find ourselves at a wedding. 
Now it's important to understand that weddings in this culture and in this time were not like weddings today. Today, wedding takes a, a couple hours for the wedding and the reception. Weddings in this time were major social events. They could take up to a week, a feast of celebration. At the beginning, as, as we read in other places in the New Testament, the groom and his groom's men would go and they would fetch the wife and her attendants. And they would bring her then to the feast that had been prepared for them. The groom was responsible, unlike today's weddings, it was the groom who was responsible to provide for the expenses of the wedding. And that, as we'll see, will come into play in this first minute miracle. And so all this is setting the stage. It's the third day, we're at this wedding, the mother of Jesus, Mary, who's actually never mentioned by name in the book of John, it just says, the mother of Jesus, she was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Likely this wedding is for a family member or a close friend of the family. We see that in the fact that, that, that Mary and Jesus and his disciples are all there. Not only that, but Mary seems to have a role in this wedding. She's either in charge of, of the catering or of uh, running things or whatever it may be. But as we see, when the problem arises, it is Mary's responsibility. So she likely has a role there. They're likely connected. And so all that sets the scene as we come to verse 3 and we come to the problem. And they ran out of wine. Now that may not seem like that big of a deal. So what? You, you drunk it all, right? Now drink water. It's not that big of a deal. But again, in this time, in this culture, it was a huge deal. This was a major issue because you have to understand that at this wedding it was a major social event and it's the groom's responsibility to provide for the wedding. And to run out would have been shameful. Potentially running out could even lead to stigma on the couple for the rest of their lives. That seems crazy to us, but in that culture, that's what could have happened. This would have been stuck with this, with this couple for the rest of their lives. Not only that, but the bride's family could potentially go as far as to sue the groom and his family for not providing what was their responsibility. You can see this is a, this is a big deal. Not only would it affect this family and those dynamics, it would affect this new couple. This is not a good way to start out a marriage. And so this issue, running out of wine, it's a big deal. And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, said to him, They have no wine. There's a problem. And apparently... Mary had some responsibility over this. And so she comes to Jesus and says, they've no wine. We don't know what exactly Mary expected Jesus to do. Likely it wasn't a miracle. I don't think that, uh, uh, in fact, we know at this point Jesus had done no miracles yet. 
It's likely that by this point, Joseph, Mary's husband, had passed away. It's likely that at this point, Jesus had taken over responsibility for the family. And so Mary naturally comes to him. There's this problem. We need to find a solution. But notice, notice Jesus' response. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That's likely not what Mary was expecting as a response. But what Jesus is communicating here is that dynamics have changed. Jesus has stepped into his ministry. And Mary must now no longer approach him as mother to child, but as believer to Messiah. The term there, woman, it's an impersonal term. I'm a southerner, I grew up saying ma'am. The word woman is, is very similar to, to the phrase ma'am. Not ma'am, as you would say to your mother, but ma'am, as you would say maybe to a, to a, a clerk at a, at a store. It's just a general reference to a woman. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Jesus here is not disrespectful to his mother, but there is a hint of rebuke. As I mentioned, this response shows a shift in their relationship. Jesus has begun his ministry and he must be about his father's business. He can't worry about, human, about a human agenda. He's not here to do favors. He has a job, a responsibility, a mission that he has been sent on by God the Father. And that must take precedence. This is what Jesus is communicating to Mary. The next part of that phrase is interesting. My hour has not yet come. The phrase my hour constantly in John refers to Jesus' death, resurrection, exaltation. So the question here is why would Jesus respond that way? That seems out of place. In essence, what Jesus is saying is Mary has come to him and said, they've run out of wine. And Jesus has said, that's not my responsibility. It's not time for me to die yet and to rise again. That doesn't seem to fit. Mary has very temporal focus. She's focused on the issue at hand. Jesus has something greater that he's focused on. Jesus, as he often does here, is looking ahead. Far beyond what anyone else has in mind. He's looking ahead not just to his death, but even to his exaltation to the blessings of the millennial age that is often described as having an abundance of wine. You see, in essence, what Jesus is saying here is, that is the normal for this age. Things break down, things run out, rust destroys. But I have a mission to make all things new. I have come to bring life and life more abundantly. Jesus is looking far ahead of what Mary or anyone else there could understand. My time has not yet come. Notice though the response of Mary. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. 
It seems that she just ignores him. But Mary's response here shows reverence for Jesus. You see, at first, Mary approached Jesus as his mother with a demand. And now, Mary leaves as a believer. She's no longer making a demand on Jesus. She simply leaves it in his hand. Do whatever he says. It's in his hand. He might do nothing. He might fix the problem. But she simply trusts him to do it. Do whatever he says. That he tells you to do. Do it. So at first here we see this problem. They've run out of wine. Next, we'll see the solution. So we come to verses 6 to 10 then, we see the solution. They've got this problem, they've run out of wine. Now we see the solution. There were there six sets of stone, six water pots of stone according to the manner of the purification of the Jews. Obviously, the purpose of these water pots was for washing, for cleaning. And so they're sitting there, and, and they contain 20 or 30 gallons apiece. These are huge pots. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. Now, what's interesting, if you were reading this for the first time, after Jesus' interaction with Mary, you would expect him just to move on. But what we find here is he actually does address the problem. But what's, interesting, what's important to understand here is that Jesus does this sign. He addresses this problem not because his mother Mary asked him to. Not because the groom here was his friend. But because this fit the timetable in what the father had told him to do. Jesus is not here doing a favor for someone. He's meeting a need. He's fulfilling the ministry that his father has called him to. Notice the next phrase, they filled these water pots to the brim. They filled them up to the brim. And as the story goes on, as many of you are likely aware, they draw water out. And the water that they draw out has been turned to wine. What has happened here is that the creator of the universe who makes all things good has now created water from wine. And he's created it excellently. In fact, as they take this to the, 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 the man in charge of the wedding, he tastes it. And he says, this is the best wine here. It is good. But what's interesting to, to understand, to, to note here, is how much Jesus provides there's six water pots of stone of 20 or 30 gallons apiece, and Jesus commands them to fill these to the brim. Jesus has here provided an abundance of wine, more than they could ever do, than they could ever use. Because that's what Jesus does. That's what he alluded to earlier when he said, My hour has not yet come. There is coming a time when the wine will overflow. When there will be more than enough. A time of plenty. 
And here as he fills this need and as he, as he provides this wine, it comes in plenty. There is more than enough. So he said, when the master of the feast tasted the water that had been made wine, he's amazed. He's amazed at the superior wine that has been provided. And it notes, though, that he didn't know where it had come from. In fact, it says that only the servants who drew the water knew. Only Jesus, Mary, and his disciples, and the servants know what has happened. Jesus has filled this need. Not because he's worked this sign, not because his mother asked him. It's not a favor to man. It's a fulfillment of his Father's will. The problem, they ran out of wine. The solution, Jesus works his first miracle, his first sign. And in verse 11 to 12 we see the result then. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. He manifested his glory. This sign testified to his identity as the Son of God. Here, his deity is on display to see for the first time. You see, in John chapter 1, all we have is, is we have eyewitness testimony. Those who see Jesus, those who interact with Jesus, they say there's something unique about him. There's something special about him. In fact, as you work your way through, you see all these names that they've used. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Messiah. This is the King. This is the Son of God. But as you come to chapter 2, here in the first 12 verses, to those testimonies, we now add signs. The sign serves to manifest His glory. To add to those testimonies and to point to Jesus' identity as the Son of God. In fact, we see that in the lives of the believers. His disciples believed in Him. You might say, what do you mean they believed? We saw in chapter 1, they'd already believed. They know who He is. But here in the beginning of chapter 2, we see confirmation of their faith. They have heard, and now they have seen. Their faith here is not new, their faith is strengthened. As their eyes behold now what their hearts have known, their faith is strengthened. And so the first sign that Jesus does is turning the water to wine. The Creator here creates again. And this sign points to his identity as the Son of God, and yet at the same time it looks forward not just to who he is, but to what he's going to accomplish, to what he is here to do. So we see the problem, they ran out of wine, the solution, Jesus fulfills the need, does this sign, and the, solution, and, and, and the result, his disciples believe in him. His glory is manifested. The first sign. So in verses 1 to 12, we saw the first sign. Now in verses 13 to 25, 
we see the last sign. And as you'll notice as we work our way through this, what I don't mean is the last sign that Jesus does in, in order, but he's looking ahead to the last sign that he will do. There's more signs in chapter 3 and 4 and 5, all the way through chapter 12. But here he looks ahead to his last sign, to his greatest sign, the resurrection. First, again, we see the problem in verses 13 to 14. We see the place where they are. They're in Jerusalem. And they're in Jerusalem for Passover. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is the first of three Passovers that is mentioned by John in the book. Passover, as many of you are likely aware, is a celebration where a Jewish family would slaughter a lamb in commemoration of their deliverance from Egypt. As the angel of death passed over the houses whose door frames were sprinkled with blood in Exodus 12. Because of this miracle, as you remember, Pharaoh allowed the people to go, to get out of Egypt, to leave the slavery that they had been in. God had provided for them. Passover is the yearly celebration where they remember that. And so Jesus and all the other Jews have gathered in Jerusalem for this celebration. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Here we come to the problem. The issue here is not necessarily what these business guys are doing. They're fulfilling a need. You see, it's not practical for men and women like Jesus who are traveling from far away, from Galilee, from other regions, to bring their own animal. It's more practical for them to travel there and then to purchase what they need. These people that are doing business are filling a need. At the same time, to pay the yearly temple taxes, certain coins that you have to use, certain Jewish money, and so again, the money changers, they're fulfilling a need. Now, there might be people who are taking advantage of that, who are charging extra, who are looking to, to turn a profit. But that's not the point here. The point here is not what they're doing. The point is where they're doing it. In fact, we'll see in just a few verses... In verse 16, Jesus' complaint, he says, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. That's the problem. The problem is that they are turning the temple, his father's house, the, the dwelling place of God on earth. They're turning it into a business, into a house of merchandise. Do those things outside the gates. But don't do that in my father's house. This is not appropriate. You see, as, as these worshipers enter the temple, as they're singing these psalms, as they're remembering how God has provided and what God has done, instead of being able to, to hear the sweet songs of their brothers and sisters as they, as they enter this temple, as they come to worship, instead of focusing on why they're there, they're distracted. They're distracted by the sounds of these animals who should not be here. By business owners haggling over prices. 
by the clinking of money as it exchanges hands. This should not be. This is not appropriate here. And so that is the problem. The problem is that they are doing business in the temple. When it should be outside of the temple. And the temple should be set aside for worship of God. Then in verses 15 to 17 we see the solution. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple. When you think about it, that in and of itself is a miracle. One man with a whip of cords is able to drive out all these animals and money changers. All these businessmen. And apparently he does it in, in, a, in a way which does not attract the attention of the Roman soldiers. He drives them out. He says to them, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise, a place where business is done. What's interesting is as he does this, it says, then his disciples remembered what was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. They're quoting Psalm 69, 9. I can almost picture The disciples' excitement. They, they, they've heard Jesus. They've sat and they've learned from Him. They've seen Him do this ministry. They've, they're now following Him. They follow Him all the way to Jerusalem. And as they're putting the pieces together, as they're coming to understand who Jesus is and why He has come, I'm sure they're starting to comb through the Old Testament. They're going to all those passages that they have memorized as children growing up. Is this really who this Jesus is? How exciting it must be to believe and to go through and to look at all these different passages and start applying them and seeing how Jesus meets them, how he fulfills them. I can just picture them now as they're sitting there and they see Jesus doing this and they're amazed at his zeal. And then it clicks, wait a second. I've heard this before. And the excitement as they, as they open the scroll and they, they go to, to Psalm 69 and say, Look! Here we see not only testimony, eyewitness testimony, not only the signs that Jesus has done, but even the Old Testament testifies to who Jesus is. And so the problem, they've turned to the temple the place of God's dwelling place on earth into a house of merchandise. Jesus, the solution, has driven them out. Next we see the result. The Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Naturally, Jesus has caught attention. In doing this, as you can imagine, he's drawn this attention to himself. And so they come to him and they say, Who are you? What authority do you have? What sign can you show us? Notice that their response is not first to arrest Jesus. It's not to, to throw him out. They have questions. They demand an answer. I can't help but wonder to what extent they have connected Jesus 
with the conversation that they had with John the Baptist just a few weeks earlier, as we see in, in, in John 1, 19-28. As you remember, they come to John and they ask him very similar questions. Who are you? What authority do you have? It's possible that they connected this with Jesus, because John told them, there's one coming after me, he is among you now. And so maybe even as they ask these questions to Jesus, maybe there, there's a sense of anticipation. Maybe this is the one. Maybe he is a prophet. Who is he? What is he doing? And the question here is very similar. What authority do you have? Give us a sign. Let us see. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. Jesus gives them a sign. As we saw, similar to John 2.4, where Jesus answers his, his mother, and he's looking far beyond what she could comprehend. He's looking ahead. So here, in Jesus' answer, he's looking far beyond what they could comprehend. His mind's on the mission that God has called him to. The sign he offers, even if they don't understand it, is his resurrection. My authority is my identity. The Jews respond, naturally, they don't understand what he's saying. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? They don't understand what he's saying here. John, in verse 25, thankfully clarifies for us, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. I remember as a kid hearing this passage and thinking, oh, that makes more sense. Who could, who could build a building as, as, as grand as the temple in three days? But in reality, Jesus' answer here makes, if anything, less sense. It's just as unrealistic to build a temple in three days as it is to rise from the dead. Is that any more rational, any more possible? It is because of who Jesus is. Because Jesus is the Son of God. And this sign to which he points will be the greatest sign as he rises from the dead and as he conquers death and hell and he gives life and hope and possibility to all who will believe. Back therefore when he had risen from the dead his disciples remembered it just as in verse 17 they remember Psalm 69 so here in several years when this comes to to, to pass when Jesus rises from the dead they connect the dots again they remember Jesus said this Again, they connect more dots. They believe the scripture. Likely they're referring to Old Testament scriptures that hint at the resurrection. They start connecting the dots. Understanding. Realizing. And they believe the word which Jesus had spoken. As we see here, their faith continues to grow. Verse 23 goes on and moves beyond the scene that happened at the temple. Jesus is still in Jerusalem. 
Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them. We see here as others, while Jesus is there, others respond to him. But what's interesting is the response here. It says that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to him. Those words believed and commit are connected. They're actually from the same root word. And so in a sense what's being said here is they believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Well, what, is, what does that mean? In a sense what, what John is saying here is that they believe that Jesus is special. They believe that Jesus is truly unique. In fact, they may have even understood that he is the Messiah, and they may have even believed that. But, unlike Mary, and unlike the disciples, they don't connect the dots. They don't understand what that means for them as sinners. They are merely entertained or impressed their amazement at Jesus has not led to faith in Jesus. Therefore, their faith is shallow. Their faith is a mere outward attraction to a spectacle. And Jesus, who knows their heart, does not believe their confession, their outward confession of faith. He knows their heart. He knows that their faith is shallow. He knows that they are simply impressed with Him. They're not believing in Him. You see, it's the difference between being impressed with an airplane and climbing on an airplane and flying. I remember as a kid, I had the privilege to, to fly several times uh, with my grandfather, we, grandparents, we flew uh, over, all over to different places. I remember as a young man, one of my first flights, I think, was to Colorado on a family ski trip. And I remember being at the airport as a, as a young man, probably five, not, not very old. And I remember seeing the airplanes and being impressed with them. These huge things. Let's say I'm even older. Let's say I'm impressed with how big it is. I'm impressed with the science behind it. I may even understand the science of how an airplane flies. But there's a difference between being impressed by an airplane and having enough faith in that plane to climb on board, buckle in, and take off. That's what we see here. They're simply impressed with Jesus. But they haven't surrendered to him. They haven't applied who he is and who they are. They haven't applied it. And Jesus knows all men. As he knew Nathaniel's heart, so he knows all men's hearts. So we come to the end of John 2. We see that Jesus changes everything. John 2 covers the first few weeks of Jesus' ministry. 
And it testifies of Jesus' identity as the Son of God, and it foreshadows what he will accomplish, what he's here to do. Jesus is the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world, and Jesus makes all things new. Jesus turns water into wine, sorrow into rejoicing, and death into life. Jesus changes everything. Jesus brings change. Jesus brings hope. As we work our way through the book of John, let us not forget John's purpose for writing in John 20, 31, that you may see and that you may believe. In John 2, we add the witnesses, not just uh, eyewitness of John 1, but the signs of Jesus here in John 2 and Scripture itself here in John 2. All of these things point to who Jesus is. Jesus himself here in John 2 testifies to what he is going to do. The application throughout the book of John does not change. The action step that John desires you to take throughout the entire book, almost every sermon that we will preach here in John, is simply this. Place your faith fully in Jesus Christ. Fully. Believe in him and him alone. Don't be like those who are merely impressed by Jesus. Be like those who believe in Jesus. Who lean fully into Him and put their full trust in Him and in Him alone. If you have never believed, may you believe today. May you turn from your sin. May you hear the testimony of the eyewitness testimony of John 1. May you see the signs and the testimony of Scripture here in John 2. And may you turn from your sins and place your faith fully in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. May you understand what it means for you that Jesus is the Son of God. That He did die, and even as we see here in John 2, that He did rise from the dead. And that He offers you life. Believe that this morning. If you've already believed, if you're already in Christ, may this passage serve to strengthen your faith. May you be encouraged this morning as you see even more abundant evidence to who Jesus Christ is. Jesus brings life. Jesus brings hope. Jesus changes everything. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we praise you this morning for who you are. We praise you that you loved us and you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And yet even as we see in this passage this morning, he did not stay dead, but he rose from the dead. His final sign, his greatest sign, pointing to his identity as the son of God. As the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Father, I pray that even this morning we would trust. We would turn from our sin and we would trust in Christ alone. Those of us who are in, in Christ, strengthen our faith. Give us new mercy each day for the coming week. May we be emboldened to go and to tell others of Jesus Christ. And we spread your fame all around for your glory. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.